Welcome. I'm Rhonda Burchard. I'm on the teaching team, and I'm happy you're here. We're going to jump right in. We are in Ephesians, as I hope you know, we're in Ephesians. And we're on Lesson 13, looking at Ephesians 3, 7 through 13. But first, we're going to read from God's Word. Let's read our passage and remind all of us what we're doing here. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And this is Paul, our friend Paul, speaking, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's just pray quick. Lord, you're good to us. Over and over, you're good to us. Thank you for your sweetness, your kindness, your mercy, your presence. Just, Lord, I just ask, may each woman take away one thing that will draw her closer to you this week. Amen. As we have learned in our study, the book of Ephesians is really a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his beloved friends in the church of Ephesus. As we studied last week, Paul, in his dramatic conversion, was called by Jesus himself to spread the message of salvation. When we look at today's passage, we see three ways that Paul describes his job. To preach, in verse 8, to bring light, in verse 9, and to be made known, in verse 10. This is Paul's job description, his task, his calling, to preach, to bring to light, to be made known. But what exactly is he preaching? What is he bringing to light, and what is he making known? What is the Apostle Paul talking about? But first, let me ask you. What do you like to talk about? If I were to ask people who know you, what would they say you like to talk about? Most everyone enjoys some topic, some area of interest. For some of you, it might be your hobby, your passion. Maybe you're training for a triathlon. Maybe you love crafting. Some of you love to talk about your children or your grandchildren. You can't wait to tell us the latest cute thing that they did. Some of you enjoy talking about your job or school, maybe your latest hike, your next vacation. Some of you like to talk about gardening, biking, or baking. You just can't wait to share the latest. Most of us have something that we like to talk about because we talk about the things that are important to us. I have a nine-year-old daughter, and her name is Hope. Now, Hope loves to talk about MLP. Anyone here with a little girl in your life know about MLP, My Little Pony? (laughs) Oh my goodness, does Hope love to talk about My Little Pony? Daily we hear about the ponies, their personalities, their cutie marks. We hear about Twilight Sparkle, Pinkie Pie, and Rainbow Dash. (laughs) 
She loves to tell the stories, their relationships, their challenges, their adventures. Hope loves to talk about My Little Pony. Most of us, like my daughter, have something that we like to talk about. The Apostle Paul also had things he liked to talk about. In verse 8, we see Paul talking about the unsearchable riches in Christ. You had the opportunity this week to recap the wonderful riches we have found in our study this year, gems like his power, love, and kindness. In verse 9, Paul talks about the plan of the mystery. Sam did a great job going over this last week, the mystery of Jews and Gentiles coming together as one under the Lord. And in verse 10, Paul talks again about the church, another one of his favorite topics that we have studied. But what else is he bringing to light in this passage? What else is he making known? When you spend time with Paul, you quickly hear a particular word he likes to use. We have already seen this word in Ephesians twice. It is in today's passage, and we will hear it two more times in our study this year. It is an important New Testament word. In fact, in the ESV translation, this word is used by multiple writers 96 times in the New Testament. What is this word that is so often used? What word did the Apostle Paul especially like to talk about? The word is gospel. Paul liked to preach the gospel, to bring light and to make known the gospel, because we talk about the things that are important to us. Let's look at our scripture passage again. We see it right off the bat in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. If he is a minister of the gospel, it sounds like we ought to know what the word gospel means. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we have questions, and that is good. It's good to be curious. So you might want to go a little bit deeper. We don't always have time, but sometimes we do. So you might want to check out how that same word is used in other places in the Bible. Then you get an idea of the depth of that word. The Bible starts to come alive, and it becomes even more meaningful. Let's do that with the word gospel. Let's take a look at all the ways the word gospel is used in the New Testament. Buckle up your seatbelts, because we're going to go fast. All the words, all the uses of the word gospel in the New Testament in 30 seconds. Are you ready? Am I ready? Here we go. Gospel of the kingdom. Gospel is preached. Whoever loses their life for the gospel will save it. The gospel must be preached to all the nations. The gospel will be preached throughout the world. Peter and John preached the gospel. Philip preached the gospel. The gospel was preached in the city. People heard the gospel and believed. God called Paul to preach the gospel. The gospel of God. The gospel was promised through the prophets. Set apart for the gospel. The gospel of the Son. Eager to preach the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel of righteousness. The gospel declares. The gospel is concerned, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, in accordance with the gospel. We do not want to hinder the gospel for the sake of the gospel. By this gospel you are saved. The light of the gospel, do not turn to a different gospel. The truth of the gospel, the gospel of your salvation, servant of the gospel, gospel of peace, mystery of the gospel, partnership in the gospel, defending and confirming the gospel, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, faith of the gospel, cause of the gospel, the gospel bears fruit, the hope held out in the gospel, 
gospel. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. We dared to tell you the gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus through our gospel, the gospel concerning the glory of our blessed God, suffering for the gospel. This is my gospel. And the last one in Revelation, the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. This is the gospel. The different ways the word gospel is used in the New Testament. It gives us an idea of the importance of this word. Now, some of those may sound familiar to you, but here's the thing. We still don't have a definition. Here at River West, we like to use this word quite a bit. We have gospel-centered teaching. We hear the word often, but what is the gospel? There is a song currently on Christian radio by Ryan Stevenson called The Gospel. Here are some of the lyrics. To the captive, it looks like freedom. To the orphan, it feels like home. To the skeptic, it might sound crazy to believe in a God who loves. In a world where our hearts are breaking and we're lost in the mess we've made, like a blinding light in the dead of night, it's the gospel, the gospel that makes a way. It's a great song. We listen to it, we sing it, but what does the word gospel mean? The word gospel can be translated good news or the truth. That helps us a little bit. But what is the good news? What is the truth that Paul liked to talk about? For Paul and for us as believers, the gospel is the truth about Jesus, who he is, and what he has accomplished for us. The gospel is the truth about Jesus, who he is, and what he has accomplished for us. So knowing that, let's ask three gospel questions as our outline for today. The first question is, who is Jesus? The second question is, who are we? And the third question of our outline is, what does that mean? Who is Jesus? Who are we? And what does that mean? Let's start with our first gospel question. Who is Jesus? The gospel is the truth about Jesus. And here's the good news. The Bible is full of truth about Jesus. A few years ago, our entire study was on the life of Jesus, and we used ID tags to highlight the different ways Jesus is identified in the Bible. We learned, for example, that he is the light of the world. Also, he is both the lamb and the shepherd. Different contexts bring out different truths. And this makes sense. We do this in our own lives as well. If I were describing myself, I might say that I'm part of our women's Bible study, The River. But is that all? No, that's just a part of who I am. In other contexts, I might mention that I'm a wife and a mother and a daughter-in-law. In some contexts, I might tell the fact that I attend seminary or how I volunteer with the foster care community. You might hear my desires for the future, my dreams, my losses, my pain, my joy. All of these things add up to who I am, but you don't see every part of me in every context. It's the same with Jesus in the Bible. The more we read about him, the better we get to know him, because every story, every word gives us insight to who he is. So last week in our study, we identified 10 different truths in the gospel message. 
And earlier in our study, we identified five aspects of the gospel. All of these are true. All of these are gospel. But sometimes it can be confusing. The Bible describes many truths about Jesus, so many things could be included when we talk about the gospel. But here's the interesting question. Is there anything that must be included when we talk about the gospel? When it all boils down, is there anything that has to be included to truly understand the gospel of Jesus? According to our friend Paul, there are two. What do you think they are? If all of Jesus' life came down to two truths, what would you say? What are the two most important truths about Jesus? Let's stop a minute right here and ask ourselves that question. You can write it down if you want. What are the two most important gospel truths about Jesus? The Apostle Paul answers our question in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. Let's look at it. This is Paul speaking. I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If we were to ask Paul, he would say the two most important gospel truths are Christ died for our sins and he was raised from the dead. The death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Christ died for our sins, and he was raised from the dead. My guess is that most of us got the first one, but I'm not so sure about the second one. I think we kind of assume it as though the second one is just understood. It's just a given, but really, it must be included. It is not a given. Paul tells us in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Most of us, if asked what is the gospel, we would say that Jesus died for our sins. And of course, that is totally true. Gospel true. But that's just half of the story. He was also raised from the dead. Because really, if he did not raise from the dead, then he did not die for our sins. If he did not raise from the dead, he did not, he could not die for our sins. Paul says we need to believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Do you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead? In the deepest core of who you are? This is going to sound like a random question, but stay with me. Shout out the answer if you know it. Who wrote the Declaration of Independence? Oh my goodness. Thomas Jefferson, does, anybody, does that ring a bell to anyone? Yes, Thomas Jefferson, third president of the United States, wrote the Declaration of Independence, beautiful monument in Washington, D.C. Is it coming back now? Okay. My husband Kevin and I years ago lived in Virginia, and it was wonderful touring the many historic sites, including Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home. When you take the tour, you learn all about this remarkable man, proficient in horticulture, surveying, and mechanics. He, his home has many of his own inventions. He spoke at least five languages and mastered architecture through self-study. He was a man of science, a man of facts. And interestingly, he was also a fan of Jesus. 
Thomas Jefferson even made his own Bible. Now that's kind of surprising, you might ask. Why did he make his own Bible? Because he didn't like everything it said. So that's no problem if you're an inventor, right? He just created his own Bible, ignoring the parts he didn't like and cutting out the parts that he liked. Then he pasted, this is true, then he pasted all of the parts of the Bible that he liked into his own version of the Bible. It's called the Jefferson Bible. This is completely true. You can buy it on Amazon or you can check it out at your local library. But here's the thing. Thomas Jefferson was impressed with Jesus. He liked Jesus. He wanted to read about more about Jesus. And he made this self-made Bible. And he read it regularly. But the book he made excludes all of the miracles. Because Thomas Jefferson didn't include anything that could not be explained by science. So it does not include the Trinity. And it does not include the resurrection. So here is how the Jefferson Bible ends. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, where was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, and rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and departed. That's it. And rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and departed. Jefferson's Bible ends with Jesus in the tomb. Jefferson's self-made gospel ended with Jesus dying on the cross and being buried, which means, of course, Jesus was just a man. Because if Christ didn't raise from the dead, he was just a man. A man that said some good things, but just a man. A man Thomas Jefferson thought was worth creating his own book about, but just a man. Many in our world want to believe Jesus was just a good man, just a good teacher. A few lessons ago, we learned about Jesus being a stumbling block. The reason Jesus was a stumbling block was because he claimed to be God. And many during his life on earth did not want to believe that. Many do not want to believe that today. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The truth of Christ being raised, Christ overcoming death, the miracle of the resurrection is actually the most important gospel truth of all. It is the thing that puts everything else in perspective because if Jesus was raised from the dead, that means he is God. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, that means he is God. And that is the answer to the first question of our outline. Who is Jesus? He is God. Jesus is God. And because Christ was raised from the dead, because he was God, his death had purpose. And that purpose frees us from our sins. The resurrection is like one of those train schedule boards. Have you ever seen one of these boards? I think these boards are so cool to watch. The first line changes, and then all the other lines start changing. The resurrection of Jesus is like that first line. Once that happens, everything else falls into place. 
The only reason, the only reason Jesus' death dies us from our sins is that he is God. Like Sam shared last week, he has to be God for it to work. And his resurrection is the proof that he is God. Remember Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confessing that Jesus is Lord is confessing that Jesus is God. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, you are believing that Jesus is God. Do you believe it? Now, for some people, that's really hard. But here's the interesting thing. History is actually on the side of the resurrection. Historical Jesus scholar Daryl Bach, in his book, Who is Jesus?, gives us multiple reasons to believe as a historic fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Not just as faith, but as a historic fact. Let's look at them. The fact that women reported the empty tomb is actually a good reason to believe it as historic truth. Because it is not a scenario anybody would have made up. If the resurrection was a made-up hoax, they would have never used a woman as the first witness. (laughs) Because in the first century, a woman's testimony was not valid. Now that sounds harsh to us, but in the days of the Bible, women were not seen as credible witnesses. Number two, in 1 Corinthians 15.6, Paul wrote that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time after his resurrection. Many of those people were still alive at the time Paul wrote that. He is basically encouraging his readers to go and talk to the people who were there. Number three, another reason to believe Jesus' resurrection as historic fact is that the entire Christian movement began in Jerusalem. Everyone in Jerusalem knew Jesus had been crucified. So if anyone could have produced the body, Christianity would have never started. But some say if the tomb was empty, the disciples must have stolen the body. But that is actually the most compelling evidence for the resurrection of all. Number four, the disciples were dramatically changed. Immediately after the crucifixion, you have the disciples running scared. They are hiding behind locked doors. And then overnight, you have them making a radical turnaround, going before the authorities and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Their lives were dramatically transformed. That brings us to our key truth. Transformed lives are one of the truest indicators of gospel impact. Transformed lives are one of the truest indicators of gospel impact. The disciples saw the truth and their lives were transformed. What about you? How has your life been transformed by the gospel? Others are watching. Do they see the change? Do you see the change? Is the truth of the gospel transforming who you are? The historical evidence says Jesus was raised from the dead. The gospel is that Jesus was raised from the dead. Do you believe it? If someone asks you, what is the gospel of Jesus, how would you answer? The two most important truths of the gospel, Jesus died for our sins, and he was raised from the dead. Will you talk about that? 
Or maybe are you tempted to pull a Thomas Jefferson and only talk about what is popular and non-offensive about Jesus? Are you tempted to talk about Jesus just as a man rather than God? In the early church, when one Christian would greet another, they would often say, he is risen, and the other would respond, he is risen indeed. Today we say that as a meaningful Easter tradition, but in the early church, they didn't just say it on Easter. They said it often, reminding themselves of the most important gospel truth. So let's try it right now. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That is the gospel. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. So let's move on to the next part of our outline. Who are we? This one is super quick to answer. We are not God. (laughs) Who are we? We are not God. But the oldest trick in the book, the oldest trick in the book, is to tempt us to be like God. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis 3-5, the enemy tempts Eve and says, For God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan told Eve, You will be like God. She fell for the trick and was deceived. The truth is she already knew the good. God said it was very good. But after sin, she knew of evil. And it was devastating. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if we never knew evil? But instead, just like Eve, we want to be like God and decide for ourselves rather than trusting the Lord. That's the enemy's trick to get us to believe our way is best rather than trusting our good God. And then we get entwined in evil because, after all, we are not God. Let's go back to our Ephesians passage. Who does Paul see himself as? Does he see himself as God? No. In fact, I like how it reads in the NIV translation. In verse 7, Paul calls himself a servant. And in verse 8, he calls himself not just the least. He calls himself less than the least. He doesn't see himself as God at all. He sees himself as a servant, as less than the least. That is humility. Now let's be clear. Before Paul met Jesus face to face, he was obsessed with hunting down and killing Christians. And that is probably why he calls himself less than the least. He is very aware of his sin. But here's the thing. It doesn't really matter where we stand in relationship to one another in terms of our sin. Did you hear that? It doesn't really matter where we stand in relationship to one another regarding our sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Yes, you. Yes, me. All. I regularly tell my children there will always be someone better than you and there will always be someone worse than you. We shouldn't be comparing ourselves to others. We should be comparing ourselves to the Lord. If I look around, I might say, I'm here, but Mary Ann, she is here. She is amazing. I can't compare with her. But the truth is, the Lord is here. 
We don't need to be looking at each other. We need to be looking at Jesus. The only comparison that matters is that he is God and I am not. And when we look to him, when we look to him, then our only posture can be one of humility. Humility is always the proper posture before God. That is what Paul is modeling to us. In Proverbs 3.34, it tells us, To the humble, God gives favor. Psalm 25.9 says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. I love Micah 6.8. What is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. One of my favorite definitions of humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Focus your eyes on Jesus. Think about Jesus, not yourself. That is why Paul describes himself as a servant. The servant is thinking of the master. So let's go back to our outline. Who is Jesus? He is God. Who are we? We are not. Which brings us to our last question, what does that mean? The answer to that question is in verse 12 of today's passage. We have boldness and access with confidence. This reminds me of Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence, with boldness. There is our answer. What does that mean? We can approach him with boldness and confidence. Now you are throwing up your hands. What? You just said humility leads to approaching God with confidence. Confidence and humility seem to be contradictory. Exactly. That is the challenge. Humility shows who we are compared to God. Paul is showing us humility True humility puts us in right relationship with God. And when we are in right relationship with God, we can approach him with confidence. But what does that look like? As some of you know, we adopted our daughters through the foster system. And because of that, they come to us with stories. Stories of abuse, neglect, and abandonment. They still bear the scars of those stories, and that plays out daily in their behaviors, words, and choices. I will tell you honestly, I am so glad I was able to turn the page and be done with the month of January. In January, I exchanged many emails and had many conversations with teachers, counselors, doctors, coaches, and even pastors about my child's behavior. I have gotten really good at writing, I am so sorry, emails. January was really hard and I felt very alone. I am regularly humbled by my children. I tell you what, I am out of my league. I know that I am not God. And in those moments, I boldly, boldly cry out to the Lord, I need your help. And that's what it means to be humble and to be bold. In her book by the same name, author Anne Lamott says prayer boils down to three simple prayers. Help, thanks, and wow. 
All three of those prayers require humility. Help me, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Wow, Lord, look what you have done. Humility to know we are not God, but we can approach the one who is. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden with the enemy talking to Eve. He tells her, you will be like God. But let's imagine this time she has our outline. She knows she is not God. So she says to the snake, let me go talk with God about this. You see, she could approach the throne with confidence because of her humility. Oh, things could have been so different. In our humility, knowing we are not God, we can approach the throne with confidence. And then look at the rest of Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Do you see it? There's our prayer. Help. But it takes humility to ask for help. It takes humility to pray to God for help. Let's look at the last verse in this week's passage. In verse 13, Paul tells us, So I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is suffering, he is in jail. And unfortunately, Paul has much more suffering to come. History tells us that our friend Paul was beheaded by the Roman emperor Nero. Our friend Paul was called by God to do a tremendous task, to preach, to bring to light, and to make known the gospel. And with that came suffering. When the Lord calls you to a task sometimes, many times, there is suffering. The good news is that with the Lord, no pain is wasted. Because the truth is, often out of our greatest pain will be our greatest gospel impact. Often, out of our greatest pain will be our greatest gospel impact. It was true for Paul, and it is often true for us as well. Our promise is found in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is not a trite promise. That is not an easy, yeah, sure promise. That is a powerful promise, which is another way of saying often out of our greatest pain will be our greatest gospel impact but it is a choice always a choice in your pain will you go to the lord look again at hebrews 4:16 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need when we approach the lord with humility we will receive mercy and grace Another way that mercy is translated in the Bible is kindness. I am more and more appreciating kindness. Kindness of friends, kindness of others, kindness of strangers. Kindness of the Lord. 
we will receive mercy and grace, kindness and grace. I'm so grateful for that. Do you believe it? Will you go to the Lord when you need help? He's ready to meet you with mercy and grace. Let's recap what we've talked about. Who is Jesus? He is God. That is the gospel. Who are we? We are not. That is humility. What does this mean? We can approach him with boldness and confidence, and that is help. All of us are somewhere in the midst of these three questions. Where are you? Are you asking, who is Jesus? If that is you, keep wrestling with this question. Don't stop. Keep coming to Bible study. The question, who is Jesus, is actually, in fact, the most important question in all of life. I believe Jesus is God. I believe he rose from the dead. What do you believe? Once you get the who is Jesus question answered, all the other questions like the train schedule board fall into place. Then you have to ask the next question, who are we? Are you struggling with control? Wanting to be God? That is the enemy's lie and the oldest trick in the book. The truth is we are not God. Find your humility. Remember Micah 6, 8, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Once we know who we are, servants, then we have humility, the right relationship to approach the Lord boldly and ask for help. Boldness with humility. That is a powerful combination. Boldness with humility. When we approach God that way, he is ready and able to help us using the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And when he does, we can humbly say the other two prayers. Thanks. And wow. And that is something that you will love to talk about. Let's pray. You're so kind, God. Over and over again, you're so kind. You're so generous. You're so sweet. Thank you. I ask you to meet each woman where she is with these three questions. Wrestling with who you are, wrestling with who she is, and wrestling with where does that, what does that mean? Where do I go with that? The amazing thing is when we turn to you, you are always there. Thank you, God. And may we be quick, Lord, to give you praise for every good thing. Amen.